Wesley Bible. Merry Christmas, everybody. Hey, a uh, couple of quick things. Uh, just encourage you. Uh, if you look on that back table there, um, you can see right above that our prayer request box. Uh, if you have things that you would like to have us pray for, uh, just uh, drop, uh, fill out a little card there on the on that box and drop one of those in that in that box, and we will gather those up. And we do pray for those things faithfully. Uh, so uh, if you have something that's uh, on your heart, uh, please encourage you to uh, make use of that. Uh, also, um, on that same table there, there are, uh, I guess there are a few left. Um, I need to get some more out of the office, I guess. Uh, but if you do not have a Bible in a good modern translation, uh, we put those out for you. And if you need one, grab one, and uh, it'll be our gift uh, to you, and you can have it. Um, it, there's only one requirement in taking one, and that is that when you take it, you, you read it. <laughs> okay. Um, the goal of the, of, of the Word of God is not simply uh, information and not simply uh, display, uh, but that we would read it and have our lives transformed by it, right? So uh, please do grab one of those, though, if you, uh, if you need one. Uh, we will, uh, we have a, a good supply of those, so feel free to grab one if you need it. Um, the other thing is, if you are new to our church, uh, or if you are, have been here since before I was born, as some of you have, uh, then uh, we want to invite you uh, this afternoon, Karen and I, uh, over to our home to celebrate Christmas with us. We want everybody to come. Uh, you know, go out. In fact, we're going to look at the, the passage where the king tells his servants, go out to the highways and the hedges and get everybody you can find. That's kind of our attitude, too. Get, bring whoever you want. Uh, it'll be a party. We'll have lots of fun. We've got fried turkey and pasta salad and all kinds of sweet stuff and salty stuff, and it'll be fantastic. So you'll need to be there, okay? So please come uh, 2 to 6 this afternoon and celebrate with us. Uh, now, uh, we have been looking over the last several weeks at some of the major aspects of what it means that Jesus came as Messiah and how there were Old Testament predictions and expectations that were tied up with the fact that Christ was coming. And so we've looked at how Jesus was a prophet like Moses, that Moses predicted that a prophet like him would come later and that people would need to listen to him because he was going to be the one who would have spoke face to face with God just like he had. And of course, when Jesus came, he was the fulfillment of that prophecy. He had not only spoken face to face with God, he himself was God. And in the flesh, and came like a prophet, like Moses, to do greater works than even Moses did. And then last week, we saw how, how Jesus was the fulfillment of David's prediction in Psalm 110, that the Messiah would be a, a priest like Melchizedek a king priest, one who would be of a different sort of priesthood than Aaron's priesthood, but it would be a king priest like Melchizedek, who was greater even than Abraham. And this week, we're going to look at how, how Jesus was the predicted king like David. And you might not realize it, but 
in the history of the nation of Israel, David is always looked back on as the ideal king. Now, David had his very human, very serious at times flaws. But he was nevertheless a godly man who, when he sinned, repented. And he was used by God to lead the nation in a God-honoring way. And he was not only king, but he was also a prophet, and God used him to write a large number of the Psalms. And he was the king who was the standard by which all the later kings of both Israel and Judah were judged. And if a man, and by the way, the, the northern tribes of Israel that split away from David's grandson, Rehoboam, uh, they never had a good king. And so they were just rated in terms of their relative wickedness. Uh, but the kings of Judah that descended from David were rated either as he walked in the ways of his father so-and-so, or he walked in the ways of his father David, even though David would have been, in some cases, many generations removed. If you were a king like David, a good king, a godly king, a king who led the nation back to repentance, to obedience to the law, to worship at the temple, then you walked in the ways of your father, David, your ancestor, your great ancestor, David. And so David became the standard by which all the other kings were measured and judged. And so the Old Testament looked forward to when the Messiah came, that he would be a king, a ruler like David, who would make the nation great again, who would restore the fortunes of Israel, and who would reign over the surrounding nations in a way that honored God. And I want to just be, be sure we're all on the same page of where they got this idea. I want you to, to see God's original promise with me in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, we've probably not spent a lot of time in 2 Samuel, uh, but 2 Samuel is one of the historical books. First uh, and 2 Samuel are about the reign of King David. And then later you get Kings and Chronicles, which I know you haven't read. <laughs> uh, if you make it through Leviticus and you're, th and you're through the Bible in a year program, Kings and Chronicles are where that Bible reading plan goes to die. Um, but in any case, Kings and Chronicles are about the other kings of Israel and Judah. And about and, and they provide the evaluation of their reign versus the standard of King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God gives this promise uh, to David and to his descendants. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go, and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt until this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house 
of cedar. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be my son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now, let me give you a little background. Uh, after the Israelites came out of Egypt under Moses, uh, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. And then after Moses died, they went in with Joshua and they conquered the land. And they drove out many of the Canaanites. Others of them they left alive in the land in disobedience to God. And after Joshua died, there uh, began to be these a series of people called the judges. So, uh, there was one woman, Deborah, along with a number of men, uh, guys like Samson and Jephthah and Gideon and uh, Ehud and uh, Caleb. And these men were all, uh, or not Caleb, uh, Caleb's Othniel, uh, Caleb's uh, son-in-law, Othniel, who, um, who slew the Philistines. Um, and, um, and you had these men, and, they, and the nation went into kind of a cycle where they would be really wicked, and then God would send another nation or a, a tribe of people to oppress them, and then their oppression would get bad, and they would repent, and they would call out to God, and then God would send a judge to deliver them. And what, as you, if you read the book of Judges, or better, if you listen to uh, Pastor Jim, who loves the book of Judges, explain it all to you, uh, what you see is that the, you see these cycles over and over and over. And uh, over time, the judges got worse and worse and worse, and so did the people. And there's, their time periods of repentance when they would follow the Lord got shorter and shorter. And eventually, the last judge came along, and his name was Samuel, and he was the first prophet and the last of the judges, and he was probably the best of all of these men, far better than what the people deserved. And as he got to be an old man, uh, the people cried out for a king, and they wanted a king like all the other nations. And so God gave them a king like all the other nations. He gave them Saul, 
And Saul was a man who at times was obedient to God and at times was a very wicked man. And eventually he arrogated to himself the role of priest and offered sacrifice before God and God took his kingdom away from him for violating the law. And God anointed David, the shepherd boy, to be king in his place. And David eventually became king. There was a long, there was a long story in between David's anointing as king and the day David actually becomes king. And this chapter starts where David has become king over the whole nation, and he's now secure, and he lives in a palace, a house that's lined with cedar. Smells good, I bet. And, uh, you know, in a day when people didn't bathe regularly, a cedar house is a great thing. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and he's living in a house, and he's looking around, and he realizes, wait a minute, something is wrong. Here I am living in my palace, and God, presence of God, is still connected with the Ark of the Covenant, and that is still traveling around in a tent in the tabernacle that Moses built 500 years ago. Now, think about 500 years ago. 500 years ago is a few years after Columbus. That's a long time. And David, out of his zeal for God, wants to do something to, to have a permanent place for the Ark of the Covenant of God and for the temple worship, I mean, the tabernacle worship to be initiated. And so he says, let's build a temple, let's build a permanent structure. And Nathan the prophet says to David, great idea, go for it. And then that night, God comes and he speaks to Nathan and he says, tell David, look, Your desire to build me a house is commendable. To build a temple, that's a great thing. But you're not the one to build it. Instead, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build up, in other words, your family and your kingdom because of your desire to, to serve me and to honor me and to bring me glory. I'm going to bring you glory instead. And your son... Uh, which is later going to be Solomon, is going to be the one who is going to build the temple for me. But I am going to establish your kingdom and your family based on your faith. I'm going to make you an eternal promise that a son of yours will forever have the right to sit on your throne. And that your throne will be established to reign over my people forever. In other words, it won't be something that if your son is wicked that you will lose the kingdom like, David, uh, like David's uh, predecessor Saul lost his kingdom. If your son is wicked, he'll be punished, but the throne will never depart from your house. A descendant of yours will always have the right to rule. And so as this was developed later by the prophets, what you see is that there's this expectation that one who is coming, is who is a descendant of David, is going to be born. And when he is born, he will restore the nation of Israel as the legitimate king. It won't be just a usurper. It won't be just some random fellow who decides 
that he would like to be king like the Hasmonean kings after, uh, after Alexander the Great. There was that period of the Maccabees in which Israel again was an independent kingdom, but it was not ruled by the sons of David. Won't be like that. There'll be a king in the, in the true line of David who will come. Now, got that? Let's go to Matthew chapter 1. It's Christmas. We need to see the Christmas story, right? Matthew chapter 1. This is probably not a section that you read to your kids when you tell them the Christmas story, but this is really important, and I don't want you to miss it. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nachshon, and Nachshon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, was, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, other than, you know, picking out baby names, uh, you probably don't read this chapter too much, right? Uh, some of you young moms, we've got a lot of you in the church. If you have a boy, here's a great list. <laughs> All right. I'm looking forward to doing a dedication for Zerubbabel Smith, you know, that'd be great. <laughs> uh, um, but uh, frankly, a lot of us, when we come to a genealogy section, in, a, in the scriptures, we just go, oh boy, major boring, skip over that, because uh, we, we don't find lists of names and descendants all that exciting most of the time. But I doubt, and I, like I say, I doubt very many of you, when you come to, to the time of the year when you're going to read the Christmas story, go, well, let's start with Jesus' genealogy, because that'll just be riveting for everybody. But here's the thing. The point of Matthew's gospel account, the, the whole reason 
that Matthew is writing his gospel is to present to the Jewish people, those of Matthew's own nation and people, the fact that Jesus is the King Messiah that they are expecting. And the theme of Matthew is presenting Jesus as the King Messiah who is to come. And even though, and the reason that he is writing that idea is because Jesus, when he came in his first coming, was so unlike the King Messiah they expected. They thought that when he came that he would come like a conquering general and he would overthrow the Romans and, and Israel would be independent once more and the kingdom would be established. And Jesus didn't come like that. He came as a poor man born to a carpenter and his wife, widely suspected to be illegitimate, which is why later on in Matthew, people say of him, isn't this Mary's son? In other words, we're not quite sure who his daddy is. Pretty sure it's not Joseph. Isn't this Mary's boy? And he came as a humble king in humble circumstances. Is there anything more humble than being born in a barn? How many of your mothers, when you were kids, said to you, what's wrong with you, boy? Were you born in a barn? Jesus was born in a barn. Contrary to what people were expecting. And when he came making his triumphal entry into the city, he doesn't have a line of elegantly dressed courtiers who are going before him with herald trumpets. He has a bunch of raggedy, stinky fishermen throwing their coats in the road. And he's riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey, with his probably bare feet hanging over the sides and with a coat for a saddle. He is not the king that people expected. And yet Matthew is concerned from the very first verse to assert that Jesus is the King Messiah who was to come. And what you see is that Matthew very carefully, he's making a theological, not just historical, but theological arrangement of his names that he picks. Because in some cases, there are more than 14 generations between these various events. But Matthew purposely excludes some people so that there are exactly 14 between each one. Why? Because in Jewish thought, the perfect number is seven. And twice the perfect number is what? 14. And so... Matthew is not just writing history, he's writing theological history. And he's constructing his genealogy so that everybody understands that Jesus is not just the perfect Messiah, he's the twice perfect Messiah, twice as good as everybody else who precedes him. And on top of that, if you... Let me just give you a, a biblical, theological, interpretive principle here, okay? When you read a passage of Scripture and something is repeated a bunch of times, it's a 
something the writer of Scripture is trying to emphasize. How many times, just do a quick count, how many times does everybody else's name show up? Twice. Every other ancestor of Jesus shows up twice. Shows up as the son of so-and-so and then the father of so-and-so, right? And Aminadab was the father of so-and-so, right? So-and-so begets so-and-so who then begets so-and-so. How many times does David's name show up? Five. Five times. Twice as many as everybody else plus one. Why? Because Matthew is emphasizing, underlining, highlighting the fact that Jesus is the son of David. Why is that important? Because the Messiah King, the one who is twice as good as everybody else, who's twice as perfect, is the son of David that you're expecting. In other words, hey, if you're looking for a Messiah, here's a good candidate. This guy is it. He's the twice perfect king. He's the more than twice descendant of David. This is the guy that you're expecting. There's an eternal promise of an eternal king who's to come. And Jesus is the fulfillment of it. And when he comes, he's going to establish an eternal kingdom. And I want you to see that. Matthew chapter 22. Turn over to Matthew 22 and see this. This is Jesus himself speaking, giving a parable about the coming of the kingdom. And this is what he says. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, this is a parable. A parable is, a, to, is the Greek term parable means to cast alongside. And so what Jesus is doing when he tells a parable is he is casting alongside everyday life circumstances the, a deep spiritual truth that he is trying to communicate. And here's what's going on here. God is the king, and he is inviting the Jewish nation 
to recognize and follow their Messiah, King Jesus. And following him, choosing to trust and follow Jesus, the Messiah, will gain you a seat at the wedding feast, which is the consummation of Jesus' kingdom. And the servants are the prophets who told the nation that the Messiah is coming and that they should prepare themselves for him. And then later it mentions some other servants, and I believe those are the apostles who will shortly announce that Jesus the Messiah has come. But Jesus, the son at the wedding feast, is going to be rejected by his people who are, because they're going to refuse to attend the wedding banquet. And some are going to just simply ignore him and go on about their lives, but others are going to aggressively reject him and kill him, just as they killed the prophets before him. And so God, the great king, just as he says here, is going to send an army to destroy the city and judge those people. And that happened in 70 AD. The city of Jerusalem was burned, the temple was destroyed, and the people were dispersed. And the king will go then and send forth other servants out to people who haven't received an invitation before, people from the highway and the road, as many as you can find. And what Jesus is saying is that the chosen people, those who were initially invited, rejected the promised Messiah, and so God has given their invitation to others, to you and to me. We are the people of the highway and the road who didn't have an initial invitation to come, but now do. And we know from the rest of the scriptures that God's judgment, by the way, on Israel is not going to be forever and not going to be permanent. They will be restored one day, but we are living right now in what Jesus elsewhere calls the times of the Gentiles when God is filling up his banquet hall with all manner of people, both those we regard as good and those we regard as bad. And the end of this parable, I think, is pretty troubling because the wedding hall is filled with guests and the king comes in and he sees a man who's not wearing wedding clothes, a guy who's a party crasher, and he has him bound and chained and thrown out. And not just thrown out, but thrown into the place that Jesus describes as the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, into hell. What's that about? This is the part that troubles people as they read this. The man's being condemned for wanting to crash the party? Really? What's that about? And what's that part about many are called, but few are chosen? Where does that fit? How does this go together? Well, let me back up here just a second and tell you this, some details you need to know, that there is some evidence in historical documents outside the Bible for when a king threw a party like this, that he would give wedding attire to all those who were his invited guests. And that did two things. Number one... Uh, you know, because the king's security problems were no less than the president's today. Uh, number one, it identified everybody who was who was truly supposed to be there. 
as being one of the invited guests because everybody's dressed the same way. And then anybody who is not dressed for the party stands out quite a bit. Uh, but, the, uh, but the other thing is, is it demonstrated the king's generosity, that he would give the equivalent of a tuxedo to every man to wear and to a woman the equivalent of an, of an evening gown is a fabulous level of generosity, particularly when you're talking about a big party where go out and get as many as you can locate who are willing to come. Fabulous level of generosity and grace. Because, and on top of that, you would have had to do that because if you're making an invitation in this kind of a way where it's not you're, go you're going to send an engraved invitation and oh, please RSVP, and you know six weeks in advance of the party who's coming and how many and who will be with and all that, no. This is go out to the street and get whoever you can compel to come in here. Well, these are not people who are going to be prepared and dressed for a wedding. And so you've got to provide a way for them to be appropriately attired. So here's what this is about. God is going to throw a banquet for his son, Jesus Christ. It's the great wedding supper of the Lamb that's uh, mentioned in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 through 9. And only those who have been clothed by the king can attend. The invitation goes out widely to people from everywhere. And people, like I say, that we regard as good people and people we regard as bad people. You know, a lot of times people put a knock on Christianity, they say, well, Christianity is so exclusive. You know, you guys say that only your way works, and that's true, but Christianity is also highly inclusive. And it's inclusive in just this way. Anybody can come. Anybody. Thieves, murderers, sexually immoral, adulterers, Cheats, Bernie Madoff, I mean, whoever you pick, pick the most, you know, the most incredibly wicked person you can imagine. Pick Pol Pot, pick Saddam Hussein, pick Stalin, pick Mao, pick whoever. And you know what? If they repent and turn to Jesus, they can come. It's highly inclusive. Get whoever you find, people both good and bad. but only those who are called by the king who respond to the invitation on his terms get to be, to be clothed in the righteousness that he provides and only those people are allowed a seat. And I think, and, 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 and that's important because a lot of people think that you can come to God just any old way that you want. In fact, we even have a, a whole ideology built around that, you know, that the only sin in our country nowadays, I think, that is left is that you would be intolerant of someone else's belief. And, and we like to cite to one another kind of that Japanese idea of there are many roads up Mount Fuji, but they all meet at the top and things like that, right? Or 
well, you have your piece of the puzzle and you, I have my piece and we tell each other that story about the Indian guys with the elephant and an elephant is like a fan or elephant is like a tree trunk or elephant is like a snake or elephant is like whatever. You know what was true of all those guys? They were all wrong about what an elephant is like. <laughs> an elephant looks a lot like an elephant, not at all like a snake or a tree trunk or a fan. And here's the reality of this. There is one way that the king provides a seat at his banquet. You have to be clothed in the righteousness that he provides, or you can't come at all. You have to be clothed in the righteousness that he provides, or you can't come at all. A lot of people think that you can say, to God, and you stand before the judge of creation and all the universe, and you will say, well, you know, God, I've done a lot of good things in my life in addition to all the bad things, and when you really weigh them out on a scale, you know, you'll see that I really come out ahead. And you know what God will say to you? I'm sorry you don't. Because you are not being judged for all of the good things that you have done. You're being judged for all the wickedness that you've done. And just as a good judge, if you stand before him as a murderer and say, well, you know, judge, this is the first murder that I've ever committed. And on top of that, I visit my mother in a nursing home every day. And I uh, help out with community needs. And I'm a Boy Scout den leader. And I do a lot of other good things. If he's a good judge, he will not say, well, in that case, you're exonerated. He will say, no, you're still a murderer, and you still must face the sentence. And God is a good king and a good judge, and he allows anybody who wants to come to him and to be clothed in his righteousness and admitted to a seat at the banquet of the eternal king, the one that God promised. So let me ask you, Jesus is the king. He's the fulfillment of, of God's promise, the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to David that someone descended from his body, carrying his genes of his family line, would forever sit on his throne. He's the fulfillment of that promise. He's the perfect fulfillment of being the son of David, who is the king who was to come, as Matthew underlined. And he's going to have an eternal kingdom. My question to you is, is he your king? A lot of people love Christmas. A lot of people love to celebrate the baby in a manger heralded by the angels and surrounded by the shepherds. Visited later by the wise men. Lots of people love that story, and it is the best of all stories. But is Jesus your king? He invites you, he invites me to participate with him in an eternal kingdom. And the call goes out to everybody throughout the world, come to the banquet. Come to the banquet for the Son, which will begin the eternal kingdom.
What was your response? There's only four responses that are possible. One response is passive rejection. Passive rejection. I heard the invitation from the king, but I was too busy with my business or my hobby or my farm or whatever. I just went on about my life, and maybe I'll get to the king's invitation later. Because after all, there's plenty of time, and there's no real hurry to respond to Jesus. Because after all, he just claims to be the Messiah. And there's passive rejection. Another is active rejection. That was the response of many of the religious leaders who plotted to put Jesus to death along with his followers. They not only refused to come, they put to death anybody who tried to come. And that's the response of all kinds of people all over the world who hate the mention of the name of Jesus and want nothing to do with him and curse him until the day they die. There's also prideful acceptance. There are people who try to come to God like that who say, well, yes, I've heard God calling me. And yes, I want to go to the banquet, but I want to come on my terms. Because after all, I'm awesome. Thank you. God, you tell me that God loves me, and I say, well, of course he does. Because I'm lovable. And gosh darn it, I'm good enough, and I'm smart enough, and people like me. Like old Stuart Smalley used to say on Saturday Night Live, right? Um, uh, and I'm, I'm awesome, so I can come to God surely any way that I want. And if I want to come through, say, Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or just based on my own awesome righteousness, being such a good person, well, surely God will accept me then. Jesus makes the point, and remember this, this is Jesus telling this story. This is gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who always loves everybody, we're told, who tells us, no, that person who wants to come to the party on their own terms will be bound hand and foot and cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The only way you can come is humbly. Humble acceptance. This is the only one that God accepts and does not bring judgment upon you for. This is the response for those, of those who aren't prepared for a party, but who are willing to come and willing to enter on God's terms. And the, the only way that God accepts is this. That you as a person place your faith, your trust, your complete trust that Jesus Christ was indeed and is the Messiah who was to come, the King, like David, who will forever sit on his throne and who will reign with you if you come to him, humbly accepting him as having made the payment at the cross for your sin 
and being raised from the dead. And having believed that and placed your trust in it, you are then clothed in the righteousness the king provides, and you are granted a seat at the party. In fulfillment of eternal promises made long ago, long ago, God promised that the king was coming. And when he came, that he would offer widely the invitation to come and be part of his kingdom and to join the banquet for the son. My only question to you is, are you going to be there? Are you one who has accepted the invitation, who will enter into the kingdom on the only terms that God accepts and enjoy the king forever? If not, can I be the one to be the servant of God in the parable and say to you, come, come, come to the banquet. Come eat and drink without cost from the one who has provided every way, everything that is needed for you to enjoy the kingdom of God forever and forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.